A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. There will be an awful lot of those 148 MPs and the, particularly the real sort of hardliners who will be wishing today that they'd waited until after this result well, to have that vote. Because I, I think for sure those numbers would have gone up. Hello and welcome to Chopper's Politics. I'm Christopher Hope, Associate Editor for Politics at The Telegraph. And this week, rather than propping up my usual bar stool at the Red Lion pub, yep, I'm back at my kitchen table working from home. And this time it's not COVID keeping me trapped in my house, but the biggest rail strike in a generation. But although the trains aren't moving, well, politics certainly is. The Tories have suffered their worst by-election defeat in history, as they lost a huge majority in Tiverton and Honiton in Devon and surrendered Wakefield to Labour. And in the early hours of Friday morning, as those results rolled in, the party chairman, Oliver Dowden, suddenly quit, falling on his sword, to the shock of most in Westminster. So where does this leave the government, and particularly Boris Johnson? Joining me to chew the fat is Gordon Rayner, our associate editor. Gordon, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Thank you, Chris. What the hell happened last night? Well, a couple of fairly expected things happened in that the Tories lost two by-elections. They lost Wakefield to Labour and they lost Tiverton and Honiton to the Lib Dems, though by probably as big a margin as anybody had predicted. It was their biggest numerical defeat ever in a a by-election. The less in fact, a completely unexpected thing that happened was that Oliver Dowden, the Conservative Party chairman, resigned um, at about half past five this morning, saying that he, uh, he felt that somebody had to take responsibility. He said, we can't carry on with business as usual. Who was he referring to there? Not just himself, I suspect. Do you think there's a degree of panic? I mean, the defeat in tiverton Holliton, it's the first time it's gone for Liberals since 1923. Yeah. In Wakefield, it's the best Labour result since 2001. But, 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 the Tories lost 15 seats between 79 and 1992, but they won the 83 election, the 87 election and the 92 election. Are they panicking, Gordon Rayner? I don't think they're panicking in as much as if you spoke to Tory MPs before these by-elections, you would have found very few who would have predicted anything other than two defeats. So in that sense, they're not panicking. 
I think what's interesting is that a lot of them are more worried about the Wakefield result than they are about Tiverton and Honiton, even though that seems counterintuitive given the sort of catastrophic scale of the uh, Tiverton and Honiton defeat. And the reason for that is that only a year ago, the Tories were still winning red wall seats. Uh, in May last year, they, they took Hartlepool from Labour. And a year on, they've now lost their first red wall seat back to Labour since the 2019 election. And so Wakefield is being seen by a lot of Tory MPs as a turning point that they've now reached a high water mark in the red wall and they're, and they're on their way back down from that. And there are 45 red wall seats that the Tories took in the last election that they're, def- they're going to be defending. If they were to lose all of those, that's the majority gone. It's not just that Oliver Dowden going. I mean, he was there at the Victoria and Albert Museum on on Monday. They raised half a million pounds. The big plan then was to create 50 or so campaign managers to refight what was the 2015 election, a ground war battle on a cost of living crisis. The, this 80-20 strategy, hold on to 80 seats, win 20 more. That was the idea. The guy behind that has gone yep. less than two years from the next general election expected in May 24. Yeah, I think what's what's interesting about Dowden's resignation, and we don't know the answer to this yet, is it is exactly what made him change his mind. Because it would have been one thing if he'd have been thinking about this for days and weeks, uh, and and you know uh, had decided if they lost both of these seats, he was going to go. But there wasn't really any indication that that was the case. I mean, nobody seems to have seen this coming. He was due to um, do the TV broadcast round this morning. So as of last night, they still thought he was going to be in place. And he obviously indicated them, to them that he would be. He spent Wednesday helping the, the Prime Minister prep for PMQs. He didn't give any kind of any indication at all this was going to happen. So quite why he's then working up at five o'clock this morning and decided it was time to go, I don't know. Do you think the wording of his letter is an invitation for other cabinet ministers to resign? It does feel that way. There are a couple of key phrases in the letter. There is, as I said, he says, we can't carry on with business as usual. He says, somebody must take responsibility. Now, obviously, he then goes on to say, well, I'm taking responsibility. But I think there's a lot of Tory MPs who think maybe that somebody should be Boris Johnson. And maybe that is what he's trying to signal himself. He also talks in the letter about how there have been several uh, very poor results for the Tories recently that he shares the disappointment of Tory members at uh, some of the recent events. He, he doesn't say he shares Tory members' disappointment at recent results. He talks about recent events. And I think he's, you know, he's very much signalling there that he's talking about Partygate, or at least that's how it felt to me reading the letter. So, yes, uh, it does feel as though maybe he is wondering whether others will go over the top with him. And if so, Gordon Rayner, who? Well... That's the question. I I think that there are already people within the party trying to spin that Dowden was on his way out, that that they weren't happy with the way that these election results have been going and that he sort of jumped before he was pushed. I'm not sure that's true. I think there will now be a reshuffle. Obviously, there has to be a reshuffle because he's lost a minister. It's possible that ministers who maybe are thinking they may be on for a demotion could decide to go out in a, in a blaze of glory uh, and, and get something from this. Otherwise, as we know, the cabinet is very, very much a cabinet of Boris loyalists. That's why they're in the cabinet. He doesn't really have detractors within the cabinet. So I think the chances of there being some sort of domino effect uh, from the Dowden resignation seem low at the moment. But then again, these results were pretty terrible for them. 
Of course, he's safe, isn't he, in terms of the backbench party. Now, there can't be another vote of confidence in him until June next year. However, mm. the rules can be changed by the 1922 Executive Committee, yeah. who were shortly about to be re-elected. That could happen. Mm-hmm. Now, I was talking to senior people on that executive, and they told me before this result that the rules won't change unless the numbers change. So let's go back to the numbers. 148 Conservative MPs said they had no confidence in Boris Johnson two weeks ago. Yeah. Is the result last night, combined with the Dowden resignation, enough to add to that number another 32 Tory MPs, and that will be enough for the party to vote it had no confidence in Johnson and kick him out? Uh, I suspect the answer to that is probably no. I think that certainly the conversations I was having with Tory MPs in the last day or so were that they they were expecting the results to go the wrong way and that crucially that had been priced in, to use that Westminster phrase, when that uh, confidence vote happened. Now, I dare say there will be a few who feel even more cross now and even more panicky now than, than before that confidence vote. I think what's for sure is that there will be an awful lot of those 148 MPs and the, particularly the real sort of hardliners who will be wishing today that they'd waited until after this result well. to have that vote. Because I, I think for sure those numbers would have gone up by... A number. I don't know how many. He's so lucky in that sense because of the chaotic nature of the of the opposition to him. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was in touch with one of those in the in the rebel camp, opposing camps. They said that the, while the cat's away, the mice will play. Mm. Now Boris Johnson is away now for nine days uh, on a series of visits, starting with the Commonwealth Heads of Government conference uh, in Rwanda. What will he do next? I was reminded by the Harold Wilson quote, who said famously, the Labour Prime Minister in the 70s, I know what's going on, I'm going on. Is that what Johnson's saying this morning? Yeah, very much so. I mean, he said before these results that it was crazy to suggest that he would quit if they lost both of these by-elections. He's said this morning that he'll he'll listen to the, the voters, he'll listen to Tory members and, and, and hear what it is that they're upset about. But I think, you know, as as was the case earlier this week. The next big danger moment for the Prime Minister is the Standards Committee inquiry into whether or not he lied to Parliament about uh, parties going on in Downing Street. That's, that's the next moment of maximum danger for him. We don't know exactly when that will be. It's probably going to be sometime in the autumn. He will be hoping that it is something that happens between party conference and Christmas. He certainly won't want it before party conference and he won't want it dragging on until next year. If that committee decides that he'd lie to Parliament, he's in a very difficult position then. Yes, and, th- and this th- this committee, this, this privileges committee, meets for the first time on Wednesday mm. and they've got to decide who the chairman is and, and how this inquiry will happen. And if he's maybe, if that re- results in him being banned from the House of Commons for a day or two or more than that, that surely must be the moment at which Tory MPs say, is this guy to fight the next election? But I was with a lot of his team last night having a drink and they were saying that he will be literally dragged out by his fingernails. Yeah. Um, and I wonder whether that's the Johnson, we, we, the, he's just going to hang on. I mean, he, he doesn't really uh, obey the rules other politicians might obey in the past. And I think he thinks, as he knows probably, every day he's writing the first line of his obituary. Mm. Why end that now? Because once he stops being prime minister, all he'll do is talk about when I was prime minister. So why end it if you don't have to end it? Yeah, I, I, which brings us back to the idea of cabinet resignations, because the the one thing that he I don't think he could survive would be if there was a, a sort of mass 
walkout by the cabinet. Now, as I said, I don't see that happening right now. But if things continue to get worse and if they decide that they are definitely going to lose the election, next election with him in charge, then they could yet move against him at some point in the next few months or or year. Certainly, I think the one thing that that has been most damaging out of this whole by-election campaign and result is this idea that his his supporters like to use as their sort of ultimate trump card that he is a winner and that why would you replace someone who has won every election that he's fought and delivered and delivered and delivered that now is is gone really for them as a as an argument because these by-elections suggest that he is not a winner anymore. He seems to think that himself. He didn't bother going to these uh, constituencies. He didn't go to Wakefield. He went to Tiverton once and avoided talking to any voters. So if he doesn't think that he's a winner anymore, then his opponents are entitled to ask, well, what is the point of him? And that is the biggest danger for him now, I think, that that, that sort of USP that he has of being this winner is gone. Gordon Rayner, can the Tories win the next election with Boris Johnson as leader? As things stand at the moment, it would seem highly unlikely. I don't think many Tory MPs think that either. Now, having said that, things can change. It could be that they pull it out of the bag. It could be that they come up with some brilliant policies and and, uh, a manifesto for change over the next uh, couple of years. It could be that they manage to turn the cost of living crisis around. But um, there, there aren't huge signs of that happening at the moment. And the final question, Gordon, just you and me talking, do you think that he'll be the leader going into the next election? A different question. Uh, I'm going to say no. I think the the Tories have a track record of getting rid of leaders if they think they are not going to win elections for them. They seem to be struggling to get rid of Boris Johnson. They've had a couple of goes. But uh, I think when push comes to shove, if they see a huge electoral defeat coming down the line and they think that he's the guy who is going to be responsible for that, then I think they will get rid of him. And I think that at the moment, the thing which is keeping him in power is the fact that there isn't really an obvious alternative to him. But it may be that in the next year or so, somebody emerges from the pack who people do see as being a credible alternative. Well, Gordon Rayner, our former political editor, now associate editor of The Telegraph, thanks for joining us this week on Chubb's Politics. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Gordon Rayner there. But how can the Tories build from this? One idea this week is from Gabriel Milland, a former advisor to Boris Johnson and now a partner at Portland Communications. Now, Gabriel's idea is to combine the red wall and the blue wall into so-called purple patches, areas the Tories must win to hold the majority at the next general election. Gabriel Milland, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Well, thank you. Thank you. Just quickly, from your reaction to the overnight result, you used to work for Boris Johnson in 10 Downing Street. Were you surprised? No, I don't think anyone was surprised. I mean, the only thing probably that was quite surprising was just how big the Lib Dem victory in Devon actually was. What it looks like to me is that the Tory vote just didn't turn up, frankly. So if there is a flap going on today, and we're speaking on a Friday lunchtime, then that would be understandable. One of your solutions is to start thinking about the country in a different way. And it's it's really set Westminster talking this week, Gabriel Milan. You've come up with the idea of purple patches, whereby you have combined blue wall and red wall seats, making the colour purple, obviously. Can you explain more about that? Well, yeah, it was a sort of a fun idea that uh, me and a couple of colleagues um, came up with. 
And people say, well, haven't you just reinvented marginals? But what I really wanted to, to say with this analysis was there's been a lot of talk about the south of England. And there is a misperception that the whole of southern England is somehow blue walled. And actually, if you look more closely at it, and if you travel around and if you talk to people in focus groups, as I do all the time, you actually pick up the fact that, you know, there are a lot of places in the south of England that have a lot more in common with what's often described as the Red Wall and, and with the Midlands, you know, places like the Medway, towns around the Solent, like a lot of coastal towns, like some of the constituencies in Wiltshire, especially around Swindon. Put simply, the whole of the south of England is not Guildford and it's not Eastshire and it's not Tunbridge Wells. Lots more of it is actually a lot more like the East Midlands or even the north of England than people expect. The West Country is a whole other story. But essentially, these are places where there was a very high vote for leave in 2016 and where there would continue to be a lot of people for whom... Brexit was really important. And there have been quite a few conversations around the Conservative Party and around people who watch politics quite closely, suggesting that, in some ways, backpedaling some of the more aggressively Tory policies and backpedaling slightly on Brexit, for example, and tacking towards the centre, is a way of saving the Tory vote in the south of England. And I'm not sure that's the case at all. I actually think it risks losing a lot of seats where leave was high. Now, you know, Remain was very high in places like Isha. I used to live in that constituency. And in Wimbledon. But those are actually quite unusual places. Do you think, Gabriel Milan, the party's got to choose that it can't ride these two horses? It can't be the Purple Party. It's got to work out which group to go after. Has Boris Johnson got to choose? I think a clear idea would be a good thing. You know, Leave got 52% of the vote in 2016. The 41% of the vote that the Conservatives got in 2019 was very largely based on that coalition. I think, they're not my politics um, at all necessarily, that hanging on to as much of that vote is a surer way of the path to another Conservative majority at the next election than moving towards what sometimes is called the centre, but actually represent quite a very small slice of the electorate. Oliver Dowden had developed an idea called the 80-20 strategy, which is to defend 80 of the most marginal seats and win 20 more. He's now resigned. What would be your strategy to win the next election for the Conservative Party? I think it's a tall order for the Tories to get another majority, given everything that has happened. Having said that, there are some bricks in the Red Wall that have yet to fall. Seats around Greater Manchester, for example. So I think keeping your eyes on the prize is a sensible idea, but essentially... It's about preserving that majority. I mean, I think a lot of those blue wall seats are trending away anyway. There is, you know, what pollsters and statisticians and analysts call a long-term secular decline in the Tory vote in places like Cambridgeshire, in Surrey, etc. And that's demographic change as much as anything. I think 
if you analyze it, and there was a very good, I must give credit to the very good report that um, Onward did on this, the center of gravity for the Conservative Party has moved north, and it's moved from Surrey to Staffordshire. London and bits of places like Surrey that are very close to London are trending away from the Conservative Party. Some trending towards the Lib Dems, others trending towards Labour. Well, Gavin Milland, partner at Portland Communications, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. Thank you. No problems. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Gabriel Milan there. Coming up after the break, a gear change away from Tory woes. We'll be talking to Anne-Marie Tavellian, the International Trade Secretary, right after this. It's painful to imagine that someone would ever have paperwork about child abuse and not do everything in their power to bring the abuser to justice. But I've been speaking to people who say that seems to have happened in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Not only was he aware of the abuse, he had heard the confession of it. My colleagues and I on the Telegraph Investigations team have been gathering evidence for the best part of a year, but I don't think any of us were prepared for what we'd uncover. You just wonder, what what is going on here? I'm Catherine Rushton, and this is Call Bethel, a new audio series from The Telegraph. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Now, this week marked the sixth anniversary of Britain leaving the European Union. And I, for one, doubt that the 17.4 million people who voted to leave in 2016 would have thought that six years later, the UK is still wrangling about the terms of that exit. But... Here we are. And despite that, one person who's out there fighting for trade deals for Britain is Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the UK's International Trade Secretary. And so, on Brexit Day, I called her up and I found her in Riyadh, in Saudi Arabia. Anne-Marie Trevelyan, Secretary for International Trade, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Thank you very much for having me. And we're speaking to you in Riyadh, aren't we? Because you're out there trying to win trade deals for Britain. That's right. I'm here in Riyadh. I've just launched the uh, FTA negotiations between the UK and the Gulf Corporation Councils, a group of the six Gulf countries. And we're really excited to be starting those negotiations today. There's a growing noise in Britain, isn't there, about the way that people feel that Brexit is contributing to the cost of living crisis. Is it? So the challenge we've got with the cost of living crisis is driven by this global battle against inflation that uh, every country is facing, which of course is fundamentally being fuelled by the energy price hike. It's affecting not only you and me as we try and fill up our cars, when we pay our gas and electricity bills at home uh, every quarter, but also, of course, it's feeding through to the stuff that we buy in the shops because fuel costs for lorries is going up, so transportation costs going up too. So this is a really difficult time for everyone. It's sadly, uh, we're seeing it across the world and the Russia-Ukrainian war has disrupted those energy supplies in a way that's creating a huge energy price hike. So this is really difficult. Brexit is giving us the opportunity as a country to be able to uh, make decisions for ourselves, freeing us up to make decisions at pace. And of course, we've seen the Prime Minister do that on a number of issues, already really important issues. And we are 
able now to make decisions financially. The Chancellor has committed over £37 billion to help families with the cost of living crisis from issues like 5p off a litre of fuel right through to up to £1,200 for the poorest families to help with those energy bills and uh, day-to-day cost of living. So we have a lot more flexibility as a result of Brexit. And of course, in the role I have as Trade Secretary, I'm out and about building trade deals, stripping away market access barriers so that our businesses can do more trade across the globe, selling our fantastic goods and services, which of course ensures great jobs, secure jobs, and indeed higher wages for jobs, because we see that businesses that export often have better paid jobs. So we have flexibility as a result of Brexit, which is giving us lots of opportunities to do more for our citizens uh, at a pace that we couldn't when we were in the EU. What exactly are those benefits? If you had to name the top five benefits of leaving the EU, what would you say they are today? So obviously, as Trade Secretary, I'm biased, but having our own uh, trade policy, I think, is a critically important one, because, as I say, it gives us the opportunity to set our cap where we want to be doing trade deals. We're able to, when we talk about our Indo-Pacific tilt, think about those new markets that are growing, where we're seeing young populations, middle class growth across the Indo-Pacific, and we're working to do trade deals with those businesses, uh, those countries and those communities to help our businesses to grow and to trade more. So the flexibility and the pace of decision making that we have in many areas is what, for me, brings us huge uh, benefits of Brexit, as well as things like uh, the issues around sustainability uh, of our fishing waters and how we are now setting uh, global leadership. These are your broad areas, Amri Trevelyan. Is there a single thing which you can name that would have not happened in the European Union? Well, as I say, there's any any number of things where we are now free to make decisions as an individual uh, nation, and we can do, and that indeed is what the Prime Minister has been doing. And I think the most stark one was, of course, the ability to crack on with vaccines uh, during COVID in a way that we would not have been able to do at that pace. You know, Brexit, in a technical sense, is delivered in you know legal terms, but of course, the opportunity to make progress, you know, things like the work that Jacob Rees-Mogg is doing to look at removing excess regulation, thinking about how we can strip away EU retained law that is not necessary for the purpose of being the final arbiter of decisions, all those areas which are now, if you like, the longer, um, they take a while to do, they're, you know, they're quite sort of, if you like, boring but important. Those will be the things that strip away barriers to helping us to really uh, go at the pace we want. Do you worry about Northern Ireland not getting the best Brexit deal? I mean, this green and red lanes idea, is that going to be enough? There were reports about a battle in, in the, amongst your cabinet colleagues about the kind of deal we should be delivering for Northern Ireland as a country. So what's really important about Northern Ireland, which is a critical region of the United Kingdom, is that their trade flows should be able to uh, continue Unimpeded. The challenge uh, that we have, obviously, the Northern Ireland Protocol was brought together between the UK and the EU before the TCA was agreed, and it was done and designed in quite a, you know, in the nice possible way, clunky way to just to protect all those areas to ensure that the Good Friday Agreement uh, wasn't disrupted. What's happened in practice, and these anxieties and question marks are built into the protocol, was if stuff happens to not work very well, or we see trade diversion, or, you know, environmental issues or societal issues, then they were factored into the protocol, the opportunities to discuss uh, and find ways to work together with the EU to change them. So what has happened is that indeed, we've seen diversion of trade where that east-west 
issue has become too cumbersome and businesses are not using those trade routes. So what we have wanted to do is to work with the EU to try and solve them. There's been a bit of an impasse. So the Prime Minister, who is absolutely 100% focused on ensuring that the Good Friday Agreement remains stable, that peace and prosperity are at the heart of Northern Ireland's future, has wanted to make progress on this and so is doing so through the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which will effectively unlock those areas, those practical areas like creating green lanes so that if goods are only going from mainland Britain to Northern Ireland, that effectively in a trusted trade scheme, they can move unimpeded. So there's a whole series of things to help make this work properly. What we hope, of course, and I know that the Foreign Secretary will be continuing to have discussions with her EU counterpart, is that in fact, through negotiations, these issues will be resolved. They're very practical issues. And that if that's the case, which obviously we all hope they will be, that those will be wrapped up and part of the protocol bill. And therefore, those changes will effectively amend the protocol as it stands today. This is not that unusual. And, you know, moving forwards and seeing, you know, development in something like the protocol is what it's there for. And that was written in. So we all hope very much that that will be resolved at pace because what we want is to see Northern Ireland thrive. It has a fantastic kind of benefit in many ways because it's obviously part of the UK, but it's got a great trading relationship with Ireland, of course, part of the EU. And we're seeing a lot of business investment going into Northern Ireland as a result of those opportunities. And I think that's fantastic when Northern Ireland used to be one of the regions with the lowest GVA. Now its economy is thriving And uh, I was there recently in Belfast. There's some fantastic young businesses, particularly in sort of tech, fintech, who are just, you know, going great guns. So I think the region is on track. But what we want to make sure is that day-to-day stuff works. When do you expect that to be resolved for them? When will this be in law? So I can't tell you the schedule because I'm not close to it. It obviously belongs to the Foreign Secretary in terms of bill management. But I know that now the bill having been presented... It will no doubt come forwards in a timely manner. We've got a fairly hefty schedule of legislation coming through in this third session to keep us all busy. I've got a small bill on the Australia-New Zealand trade deals, which is very exciting. A couple of small issues that will help bring it into force. But there's all sorts of other bills as well. So I'm sure that Foreign Secretary will be pitching to get hers in at the earliest opportunity to make progress on it. Okay, now there's talk of a new national flagship that the MOD will build £250 million. Well, the idea is to help connect Britain with the world in a soft power way. The the key point about this national flagship is it's meant to trigger trade deals or act as a catalyst for trade deals. Does your department support the idea of it? So I'm very excited about all the trade deals and the seeking of new opportunities that having our own trade policy affords us. Interestingly, what we saw last year was as uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth, our amazing aircraft carrier, a world-class aircraft carrier, toured the world on a what I can describe as a, a diplomatic, spectacular tour. We discovered, uh, as we already knew, and as I think the flagship would add to that pot, that the Royal Navy coming into port in a fantastic piece of British-made maritime kit, brings together both diplomats, politicians, civic society and businesses to meet together aboard our great vessels and to both reinforce the honest broker relationship that the UK can have with every country in the world and also remembering that the Royal Navy is, and I know I'm biased, the supreme navy on the planet and will work with all those around the world who want to defend access to the seas, keep our seas open for trade 
and ensure that every country looks after its maritime environment. So we already have an amazing flagship that does that. And I look forward to hearing more about the flagship. I haven't been close to the detail, obviously, but uh, I look forward to hearing more about it from the Ministry of Defence in due course. And I'm sure that uh, the Secretary of State will keep us posted when it's appropriate. Now, in the UK, I'm working from home this week because I can't get to London because of the train strikes. You're in Riyadh. You're luckily far away from this this uh, frustration. Should the government get more involved? They're currently they're stepping back and allowing the rail bosses to negotiate with the rail unions. But should the ministers have more of a role in this? I wasn't entirely immune to it. As I was heading out to the airport yesterday, uh, I had the pleasure of London gridlocks because everybody clearly had to drive to and from work because the trains weren't working. It's completely unacceptable for the RMT to call these strikes before negotiations have really got underway and that they're not at the table having sensible discussions about what is modernisation of the railways and indeed improving the security and safety of their workers by using technology rather than putting their workforce into risky environments now that there isn't a need. The government isn't involved yet because this is a discussion like any private sector business between the employer and the employee and the RMT need to get round the table with those employers and discuss the important matters. But, you know, I really think they need to be working for the benefit of their of their members. And it seems to me that the RMT are trying to slow down with the fear that technology somehow removes a workforce, which isn't the case. So I hope very much that the RMT will come to the table and have proper discussions and not put workers, nurses and doctors trying to get to work, kids trying to get to school to sit their exams, as well as you and I getting to and from our workforce. What I'm hearing quite a lot of, of course, is that hospitality industry is also being hit incredibly because as you are doing, you're working from home, so you're not perhaps popping around to the pub at the end of a hard day's work with your colleagues for a pint. These are things which have, you know, in in, uh, multiplier effect, a huge impact on our economy. So I hope very much that the RMT will change its perspective and get around the table and negotiate a good and sensible and long-term settlement, which is both for the security, but also the safety of their workers for the firm. And I hope very much that the Labour Party will encourage them to do that, because at the moment it feels like they're not really speaking clearly to their leadership. You can't really blame the Labour Party, though, can you? I mean, your government's been in charge for 12 years and shared power for five of those years with the Liberal Democrats and also governed as a, as a minority government. But all told, the Tories have been in charge for 12 years. At some point, the government's got to stop blaming Labour for these issues and take it on the chin themselves. We're now facing, are we not, a summer of discontent. Postmen might walk out, teachers might walk out, barristers are going to down their quills. Are, are you worried about this? So I'm worried that Labour, who are the party of the unions and who are happy to take union money as part of their campaigning, are not actually looking them in the eye and saying, by going out and calling out strikes on the railways, you are really putting everybody's day-to-day lives and the economy out. And I think an honest, good leadership that's worthy of wanting to govern would look them in the eye and say this is not the way to do business. Standing up for your members does not involve also bringing the railway system to a halt. Through COVID, this government has supported workers and businesses in so many ways, uh, hundreds of billions of pounds of support. And as we come through this global inflation spike, we need to all work together to ensure that our economy continues to thrive and that we support our young people to have a normal education again. And actually going out on strike uh, is not the solution. Is Boris Johnson the right man to lead your party into the next election? 
I think he is. He has demonstrated again and again that he has a clear vision and an energy to drive both reform and difficult decisions and to take uh, the right decisions. His instincts are the right ones time after time in what has been, you know, and they do say, you know, politics is all about events, dear boy, events. He has had one hell of a set of events thrown at him over the last few years. And he has demonstrated again and again that he gets those big calls right. And I am very, very happy to stand alongside him and support him. I happen to know that work has started on the manifesto for the next general election campaign, the need for Tory policies. Do you think that manifesto should include a pledge to reverse the ban on fox hunting? You're ahead of me if you know about the manifesto having uh, been begun, but I'm busy, you know, at about trying to get trade deals signed. So I'm focused on now <laughs> and thinking about what our businesses uh, want and how they can grow uh, their economies for the future. And I hope very much that by the time we get to the next election, which speaking as someone who's done a lot of elections in the last few years, won't be until 2024, want to make sure that we are doing all we can with the tools that we've got. And I am focused on trade to really boost those opportunities and to build those relationships we are you know we are for all the disruptions of covid in a really global world and i want businesses if they're in berwick to be able to do business work in bahrain i want a high-tech business based in dover to be working with the citizens of doha honestly that's what's important right now because that's how we grow our economy we make everybody richer and then they can do what they like in their in their free time chris and I don't think it's government's duty at this point to discuss what those will be. I'll come back to you on that one, Amrita Valley. Just finally, is it time for a, a Buy British campaign to get people buying British to support British manufacturers in the same way we had in the 70s? Absolutely. And I think we already do in terms of some of our finest food and drink. Uh, we have Red Tractor for some of our fantastic produce. Much of it comes from Northumberland, obviously, just, just saying, you know, in case anyone wants to know where <laughs> slam there is. But actually, we have some amazing stuff. Buying British, I think, is without question something that very many of us listeners do. Our supermarkets have got much better about championing where our food comes from. And we have fantastic choice, actually, as consumers not only through our supermarkets, but also buying local. And I think we've seen that there are upsides to COVID. It's hard to see, but actually is that people have been shopping closer to home. And in doing that, they can buy amazing goods that have been produced near them. So I would always encourage people to buy local, but buy British always. But I want the rest of the world to buy British too, not just us. I want everyone else out there to be buying British too. And that's how we're going to grow our exports. Anne-Marie Trevelyan in Riyadh. Thank you for joining us this week on Chubbs Politics. Have a great time. Thank you. Thanks so much. Well, that's all for this week, listeners. Yet another massive week in the mad world of British politics. I would love to know your thoughts on what we've discussed. Should Boris Johnson lead the Tory party into the next general election? Is Brexit done yet? And what more can Anne-Marie Trevelyan do to make Brexit a success? Email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or I'm on Twitter. We're at chopperspodcast. For more from me, please sign up to my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter, bringing you Westminster insights straight into your email inbox every weekday. Sign up, telegraph.co.uk forward slash politics newsletter. And do be sure to check out my weekly Peterborough Diary column out at 7pm on the Telegraph's website every Friday and in Saturday's newspaper. Thank you to my guests once again, Gordon Rayner, Gabriel Milland and of course Amrit Vellian. Thank you once again to my brilliant team of producers, Giles Gear, 
Elliot Lampitt and Louisa Wells. And a fond farewell to my very old friend, one of the original producers of this podcast, Theodora Luludis. Theo, we're going to miss you. And as ever, thank you to you for listening. And finally, if you can, please do buy a copy of The Daily Telegraph. I know you won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.